Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. How good is that? On Resurrection Sunday, if you're not familiar, we, I say, or somebody says to you, He is risen. He is risen Let's try it once more with feeling. Come on. He is risen. He is risen <laughs> it's good. Not very united, but good. That's all right. That meant the passion was there. Right, the reason we do this is because it connects us with Christian history. It connects us with believers throughout history, so generations and generations and generations. It's not just us right now living out our faith. It's thousands of years beforehand that this has been lived out to this day, and God willing, many years to come. This is the way we live out our faith. And Resurrection Sunday, this is the high point of the Christian calendar. This is the most exciting day. This is the day we celebrate that Jesus, who was dead, is now alive. The one that we claim is our king. The one that we say is the son of God is alive. And that is worth celebrating. Amen? Amen. So I want to get into that today. But I want to get into it. After we've, we've had these discussions over the last few weeks that Jesus is the true prophet, he's the true priest, he's the true king. What I want to look at today is something else. If we've ticked off all those boxes, then what is left for Resurrection Sunday? That's my question for you today. So let me start with this one verse that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, which is a beautiful, powerful passage about the resurrection. Verse 14, he says this, If Christ has not been raised then our proclamation, our preaching is in vain, and so is your faith. Let me say that again. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and so is your faith. That is everything we say is worthless about Jesus. Everything we do has no meaning if it's done in Jesus' name. If Christ has not been raised from the dead. So if somebody comes to you and they say, I like Jesus, but I don't know about this whole resurrection thing. You can say, well, God bless you. You are welcome to your opinion, but that doesn't work. It just doesn't work. We're going to look at that a bit today. And I want to get into one of the great thinkers of our time because before there was John Mark Comer, there was C.S. Lewis. Should have been called O.G. Lewis, but that's not how his parents named him. But he was the O.G. of theology in the 20th century. He was a, a scholar. He was a philosopher. He, was a, he actually held a chair in Renaissance and medieval literature at Cambridge. Cambridge invented this chair for him because he was that important and had this sort of scope around that area. I don't know how many people were coming to study medieval and Renaissance literature, but obviously enough that they went, we would like to pay C.S. Lewis a lot of money to come and sit here and teach people about it. That's the kind of importance he had. During the Second World War, he'd become a famous writer and a famous thinker, and he'd come to faith a bit later in life, and the BBC asked him to do this series of addresses about the Christian faith. And it became known as Mere Christianity. It was put together into this famous book called Mere Christianity. And it's one of the most powerful pieces of writing about the Christian faith. It is a little wordy for those of us in the 21st century. Maybe worth reading and rereading and letting it sit, but it is so very good. And in the middle of this, he was asked to explain why Jesus can't be just a good teacher. Because many people, and you might be in this room thinking the same thing, many people said Jesus is a good moral teacher. And C.S. Lewis went, no, he's not. 
And, and when people challenged him, he said, look, when you look at the things that Jesus said, he is either a liar or he's a raving mad lunatic or he is who he says he is. He's the Lord of all creation. And so we're going to dig into that a little bit today because on Easter, it's always a good thing to understand a little bit about why we believe what we believe. And if you're a cynic, if you're a skeptic in this room, I'm so glad you're here. And I pray that this is something that is informative for you. So in 20 minutes, definitive proof that Jesus was who he says he is. <laughs> okay. This is what C.S. Lewis says about the idea that he's a good moral teacher. He says, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, classic C.S. Lewis humor, or else he would be the devil of hell. So was he a liar? Was he a lunatic or was he the Lord of all creation? First, was Jesus a liar? Great question to ask on Resurrection Sunday, right? First, let's look at three pieces of evidence. First piece of evidence. I'm going to go through this pretty quickly, okay? So if you want to really discover it, you're going to have to go back and do the hard work for yourself. That's how faith works. I'll present you with some help. Then you've got to go do the hard yards with Jesus. But the first piece of evidence. Jesus claimed in Luke chapter 4, verses 18, 19, to be the Messiah. Now, he talked about this a little bit over Easter. Messiah means savior, means anointed one. It's, it's the word Christ. It's the same word. And what he meant when he said he was the Messiah is that he was the chosen one to liberate Israel from the captivity they were in and bring them into the destiny they were meant to be a part of. Jesus claimed to be this. That's a big claim. In fact, it's the first thing he ever really says in public ministry. He uses the phrase anointed one from Isaiah chapter 61. He goes into his hometown and unrolls this scroll and just reads it in front of all the people he grew up with and basically like, I'm the Messiah, deal with it, scroll drop, and walks out. And they are losing their minds a bit. And in Luke 9, he talks about how that Messiah must suffer and be rejected by the priests and the elders. So I put this up here, not to prove whether he's telling the truth or not, but to show you that Jesus believed he was more than just a good teacher. So if somebody comes to you and they say, yes, well, Jesus was just a good teacher, you can say, well, that's not what Jesus thought. I mean, should his opinion be taken into account? I feel like it should. It was him after all. So straight away, he believes he's more than a good teacher, but he is also telling the truth about his future suffering. We see that that comes. Why? He gets hung up on a cross to die. He gets tortured. He gets whipped. He gets beaten. We know that the suffering was true. Jesus saw it in advance, so we can trust that. Here's the second piece of evidence. Was Jesus a liar? He forgives people's sins. Forgives people's sins. In Luke chapter 7, verse 48 to 50, and Luke chapter 5, verse 20, and a whole bunch of other places, we see Jesus going around and saying to people, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. Now, doesn't seem a big deal. Why isn't that a problem? The problem is only one person can forgive sins. That is God. So as soon as Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, he is putting himself in the position of God. That's one of the many, many ways throughout the New Testament that we see Jesus declaring that he is God. He rarely outright says the phrase, I am God, because I'll get to why in a little, in a little while, actually, but it wouldn't have made sense in the context. The point he is making here is by forgiving people's sins, he is aligning himself with God. So Jesus is taking the place of God, and this would be a great place to call him a liar. How can you be God, Jesus? Except when he says in Luke chapter 5, verse 20, friend, your sins are forgiven you, people get mad at him. They get, they get a bit narky, they get a bit antsy, they get fired up, and they start challenging him. 
And he says, well, what's easier, to say his sins are forgiven or to heal him? And then he sort of shrugs, casually flexing, and says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has power to forgive and authority to forgive, he looks at the person, he says, get up, take your mat and walk home, your faith has healed you. So he follows up his declaration of forgiveness of sins with a physical healing. He spiritually restores him and he physically restores him and he physically restores him to prove that he has the authority to do it. Why does he have the authority? Because he is the son of God. That's what he believes. That's what I want you to understand. So he's not a liar because he made a claim and then he followed it through with actions. Here's the third thing he does. Three times, including in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 33. Jesus predicts his own death and resurrection. He calls his own shot. He says, I'm going to be crucified and then I'll rise again. That's a pretty impressive thing. I, I don't recommend like that as your New Year's resolution. But if you can do it, if it's going to happen, then you've got to actually follow it through. And we've celebrated that being true. That's why we're here today. Because the resurrection happened, that's why we stand here today. And even if we're still here questioning the resurrection, which is quite understandable. It's a big thing to think about. The fact that he died is authoritative. And Jesus predicted his own death. He said he would be crucified. He said he would be strung up on a tree. He said he would take upon himself the curses of all the world. And that's what happened at Easter. So we can say with some authority that Jesus is not a liar. Now, this, by the way, is not intended to be definitive. Not if you want lunch today. Okay? I've only got enough time to outline a little bit of information. But you can see here that Jesus does not claim to be a good moral teacher so if we think he's just a good moral teacher, we're missing the mark. But we can also see that Jesus hasn't lied and he successfully predicted many things that seem impossible. So he is not a liar, but was he crazy? Was he a lunatic? See, you would think that the best evidence for this is that he called himself God. This is a bit I wanted to get back to. But that wasn't the crazy part in the culture of the day. You, you've got to remember that the, the strongest culture in that region was not Jewish culture. It was Greek culture. The Greeks had come in before the Romans. And when the Romans came in and they took over using force, the Greeks came over and they took over using culture. A bit more like the States do. Well, for Australia anyway. Anyway, let's not get into that. Um, <laughs> Nobody needs geopolitics on a Sunday morning. Um, the, they, so the Greeks came in and they enculturated the people. And because they were enculturating the people, what did everybody think about? Well, they talked about demigods all the time. The line between God and man was blurred for the Greeks. They blurred mythology and reality, and they, and they really didn't have this sense of, I believe in Zeus so much as like, ah, conceptually, it feels good for me today. So there was a whole lot of that going on. And that had begun to leach into the Jewish thinking. So for Jesus saying, oh, I'm a God, the people of the day would have gone, oh, yeah, that's not that unusual to say as a statement. It would be weird for us today back then, not so unusual. But this is how he framed it. Jesus does this in John 10. It's a bit like, for us, it would be like saying we're made in God's image. That's kind of how they would have framed it back then. But in John 10, Jesus uses this logic. And he starts talking to the Jews. And this is how the Jews respond. Again, the Jews picked up rocks to stone him. Another tough morning for Jesus. Jesus replied, you know, Jesus replied, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these works are you stoning me? We are stoning you for a good work, the Jews answered, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So Jesus used this logic that everybody understood about being gods, about being made in God's image, about being like 
God, everybody in that world understood what was being used there, how that was being used. So why did they pick up rocks to stone him? Because that's not what Jesus was doing at all. It's a classic facetious argument. After Jesus has made a point, and then afterwards he's like, what? Your own scholars say we are like gods. And the Jews are like, you, you know that's not what you said. They're, and they're furious about it. They knew that Jesus wasn't just saying he was one of the gods in a metaphorical way. He was claiming to be the one true son of Yahweh, Israel's God. In fact, the, Israel, the, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, were really the only culture that this would have been offensive to. Every other culture around them, they wouldn't have had a problem with it. But for the Hebrews, it was unacceptable. And so they got furious. And when they got angry, this is the key part. Jesus just pointed to his own miracles as proof. He said, what about the good works I did? Doesn't that uh, count for anything? And if he's a lunatic, you'd just dismiss him. Nobody wastes their time arguing with lunatics, except on the internet. If he was a heretic, they'd arrest him. But if he's working miracles as proof to what he says, that might arrest you. That might stop you in your tracks. This is what he says in verse 37, and this is where we really see it. If I'm not doing my father's works, don't believe me. But if I am doing them and you don't believe me, believe the works. Jesus is saying, you don't have to believe me if you don't want to, but just look at what's happening. Look at what is breaking in. Look at the miracles happening around you. Look at what has come. There is a new kingdom. There is new life. If you look at that, you'll stop getting so mad about how you think I'm transgressing some kind of social rule here. And then he goes it and says this, this way you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father, aka we are one and the same. There is one God and you are now seeing him visibly in me. And that is a wild and offensive thing to say to the Jews of that culture. So again, they tried to stone him, but Jesus slipped away. The Jewish leaders had two options. They could have taken him at his word and seen the miracles and trusted in him, or they could have said, that it was all the devil, and they chose door number two. It's hard to claim, though, that Jesus, the man who healed the sick, who championed the poor, included the marginalized, and as we proved, was not a liar, was a lunatic in league with the devil. But if you can't call him a lunatic, and you aren't prepared to take him at his word that he is the Son of God, you start to run out of excuses. If you know that he's not a liar, and you know that he's not crazy, and you know he's not crazy because you're about to stone him to death, you wouldn't have bothered with the crazy person. Then you're running out of excuses. There was only one other excuse that they had, but it wasn't available to the Jews of that day. It's only available to us today. And it's one category that C.S. Lewis didn't address. It is the excuse of legend. See, this trilemma, liar, lunatic, or lord, has been picked apart a bit. And I, I don't think, frankly, I don't think C.S. Lewis ever intended it to be like a rock-solid theological idea. It was just an argument that he was speaking to a particular argument. It was Jesus a good moral teacher, or was he something bigger? But because we're thousands of years beyond the time of Jesus, the idea of legend has come up. Could it be that Jesus, it's not that he was a liar or that he was a lunatic, but that everything that happened was just the stuff of legend. It was just made up, or it's just got bigger as time's gone on. Well, it's a reasonable thing to ask, but it's not really possible for a whole variety of historical reasons. Um, this, I do not have time to go into the full thing, but I think I've got, we've got a couple of, uh, there we go. If you want to go deeper, here's a couple of uh, sermons that we preached here in Counter on this in the past, three years ago, the proof of the resurrection, and last January, Jacob preached on can we trust the Bible? You put those together with this, and you've got a pretty ironclad argument at that point. 
C.S. Lewis may not have mentioned the idea of legend, though, not because he didn't think of it. Remember, he was the chair of medieval and Renaissance history, and medieval and Renaissance literature, rather. He was thinking about that stuff constantly. He may not have mentioned it because he saw how false that was. See, later in life, when he became a Christian and an expert on myths and legends, to the point that, again, he was paid to talk about them, uh, he writes this in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. He writes about how he wrestled from atheism towards Christianity and how he viewed the legend of Jesus. Because being the man he was, he viewed it as a legend. C.S. Lewis spent all his time wrestling with Greek mythology and Norse mythology and things like that. So he came to Christianity going, I'm sure this is a legend. It was an atheist after all. And he said this, I was by now too experienced in literary criticism to regard the Gospels as myths. They had not the mythical taste, and yet the very matter which they set down was precisely the matter of the great myths. What he's saying is they aren't written like myths, but the stuff in them is, is the stuff that is in mythology. It doesn't make sense. He goes on. If ever a myth had become fact, had become incarnated, it would be just like this. Here and here only in all time, the myth must have become fact, the word flesh, God, man. See, C.S. Lewis, this extraordinary intellectual and expert of ancient mythology, had stumbled on a genius idea, the idea that Christianity is a true myth. Christianity is a true myth. Just stay with me here. This is what C.S. Lewis said in God on the Dock. He says, now the story of Christ is simply a true myth, a myth that is a, a, a legendary story working on us in the same way as the others but with the tremendous difference that it actually happened. If you've ever heard of things like the hero's journey or the, the, uh, the uh, I can't remember what it's called, but like the 12 steps that every story has to go through, people have talked about how this is present in the prodigal son and present in other parts of biblical literature. And it's not that they went and, went and looked at the hero's journey, which was written in the 1900s and went, oh, let's backfill that in you know, Jesus' time. Of course not. It is just that the stories that are so compelling have these elements that draw us into them. And the reason they draw us into them are because they are fantastical. They are supernatural. They are bigger than what we can understand. But the reason we stay with them, in the case of the Bible, is because they are true. Yeah. Everything the Bible talks about is beyond our understanding, right? Gee, we're celebrating a man who rose again from the grave, and then he didn't die again later on. Did you know that? There's a resurrection and there's like a resuscitation. Lazarus, Jesus raised him from the dead and he died later. Jesus was raised from the dead and he never dies again. He is living eternally. He is at the right hand of the Father, judging the living and the dead. Nothing changes with Jesus. That is fantastical, but it is also true. And that is the dilemma of legend. Why do people wonder whether the story of Jesus is true? Because it's impossible but it's true. And if it is true, if Jesus is not a liar, a lunatic, or a legend, then we are left with one solution, the solution that Jesus is, in fact, the one God, the true Lord. See, Jesus means different people, to diff uh, different things, rather, different people in different religious systems. Uh, for the Buddhists, he's not God. He's an enlightened man like the Buddha. To the Hindus, he is, an, he is one incarnation of God like the Krishna, uh, to the Muslims, he is a man and a prophet, similar but inferior to Muhammad. 
to the Mormons. He is only a man who became one of many gods and is Lucifer's half-brother. The Mormons, man. To some New Age religions, he is more of a, a concept, a state of consciousness to aspire to. And to many people I speak to today, he is, guess what? A good moral teacher. I like some of Jesus' teachings. Like, well, that's nice. That's not what he was about. That's not what he was about. See, the Bible teaches this, that Jesus is the Son of God. And everything that is taught outside of the Bible about Jesus is not rooted in history. One of the reasons that we got Jacob to preach a message last year and why you can trust the Bible is so you can trust the central figure of the Bible. That's the point. It's not so you've got a guidebook to go, oh, now I know how to live my life. Like, No, no, no. It's so you've got a revelatory autobiography about Jesus written in the first person by the Holy Spirit, God himself, to reveal himself to you in all his fullness, the way that Jesus was revealed at Easter and was glorified on Resurrection Sunday and at Pentecost lit a fire inside of us. That is the purpose of reading and understanding the Bible. It's not to win at religion, it's to reveal truth to you. And in the case of Jesus, truth has come as a person. And when truth comes as a person, and when it can be proved, well, we have to take that pretty seriously. See, John's gospel puts it this way. You might have heard this before. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For the son of God, for God did not send his son into the world in order to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That was the purpose of Jesus coming. Jesus is God made flesh. He claimed it in his words. He explained it in his teaching. He backed it up with his miracles. He finished it on the cross and he tied a bow on it at the resurrection when he rose from the grave. Jesus was and is the son of God. He both is a historical figure and is also divine eternally. Both those things true at once in Jesus. He lived the most fully human life and was resurrected as only God can be. So the question is, now what? Now what? Because the purpose of what we call apologetics, the defense, the explanation of the Christian faith, it's the kind of thing I've been talking about this morning. It's not so you walk away and go, oh, that was interesting. Good sermon, pastor. Watch it, Michael. (laughs) The purpose of apologetics is so that it goes deep in your soul and convicts you from the inside out to go, if Jesus is real, now what? What what does that mean for me? Because if Jesus is real, this this is not like just a story that we go, wow, that's uh, really moving and compelling. There's a lot of people, maybe you're in this room, you would have said before today, I'm spiritual but not religious. And I would say that is beautiful. The reason you are spiritual is because God, through his Holy Spirit, has been calling you towards him. But the purpose of that call is to find it in someone. And in that someone is Jesus himself. And the reason we're called to find it in Jesus is so we can then live our lives out of the truth of who Jesus is. And that changes everything. And I get it. This is not, like I said, a comprehensive argument. This is 20 minutes on an Easter Sunday. We don't have time for that. You need to do the hard work. You need to look up who Jesus was, if he was, who he claims to be. This is designed to give you understanding that Jesus is who he says he is and that there's plenty of evidence to back it up. That's not the main point. The point is this. If Jesus is who he says he is, how does that change your life? Not about opinion or preference, about truth, about proof. If we are people who actually live 
from truth. Uh, ben, you can come back up. I read a really disturbing article this morning uh, via the Australian Electoral Commission who have said that there's an increasing amount already of people on Facebook who are starting to spread rumours that the AEC, I'm not paid by them, but the, that the AEC uh, is gaming the system, that, they, that you cannot trust that your vote will go where it says it will. Now, if you've ever been and voted, and if you're over the age of 18 in Australia, that's all of you, because that's the law, uh, then you have seen, it is actually quite a complex system. There are a lot of people standing around to make sure things work, and most of them are volunteers. They're not paid. There's no, there's no master plan behind it. Or oh, actually, they are pay, paid, sorry. They're paid quite a lot of money, but that's why they volunteer on that day. They don't work for the AEC. They turn up, they do their job, they make sure that all goes smoothly, and they leave. And this kind of misinformation comes in to make us doubt what we should trust. That is, you don't have to trust the people you are voting for, but the system we have, it's pretty good. It is pretty darn good. Go to Latin America or Africa, see if you change your mind. See, we can trust that system, but there are a lot of people who look at the truth and go, no, no, I, uh, I don't believe it. And they take some ideas that have come across from America, you may be familiar, about we cannot trust the political process. Why? Oh, don't make me give proof. This is the same thing. When we have the proof before us that Jesus is who he says he is, we need to be asking ourselves the question, what do I do about that? Am I a person of the truth? Or am I a person who sees the truth and goes, oh, that's nice, but no thanks. That's the challenge to us. That's the challenge. See, friends, if Jesus was resurrected, three things should happen. It should change your ethics. It should change the way you live your life. Your ethics should now be taken from the teaching and way of Jesus. You can call it morality if you like. I changed this slide late. If Jesus was resurrected, that should also change your mission. So not just how you live your life, but why. The purpose you live your life for. See, the purpose you live your life for, your mission, should now be taken from the mission of Jesus. And if Jesus was resurrected, then that also changes your destiny. The place you are ultimately going to. Your destiny is not death in the grave, it is life. New life in Christ, now and forever. That is the destiny. See, Mark Clark, an author I love, puts it this way. You can't sit on the fence about the resurrection. You can't. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then we've got to believe him and take that seriously and follow him. We have no other options. He defeated death, the one thing no one has ever been defeated. Nothing, nothing like that has ever happened before. Nothing has happened after. Only Jesus has defeated death. Now, nobody can make this choice for you. But the purpose of Jesus' coming was not to say, I am a good moral ideal to look at. The purpose of Jesus' coming was to say, death has been defeated and I have life for you. Right now and into eternity. So now what, church? Now what? Where do we go from here? The resurrection is the proof of concept for God's vision of new life. Without the resurrection, the cross has no long-term meaning. That's what Paul was trying to tell us. And more importantly, without the resurrection, the cross has no proof. How do we know Jesus was who he says he was? If we end on Good Friday with the cross and we go, oh, what a tragedy, then yes, it is a tragedy. But because we get to Resurrection Sunday, it's not a tragedy, it's a victory. It's not grief, but triumph. 
It's not sorrow, but it's joy. This is why, here's where the real song comes in, babe. Graves into gardens, death into life. There ain't no grave that can hold his body down. The tomb is empty. We don't just say this as rhetoric. We are stating truths. We are stating historical evidence that we poured into song so that we can understand it and recite it and memorize it so that it sticks in our mind because music does that in a way that our words cannot. So we sing these lyrics as a way to understand that Jesus was who he said he was. He did what he said he would do, which means that the future is what he says it is by defeating death. God proves that death is not the final answer or even the final destination, both now and not yet. Let me work backwards from this. If your destiny is to be resurrected, then your mission, your purpose has vital meaning. Because if you know where you're going and why you're doing it, you know what you're doing to get there. You know what you're doing along the way. If Jesus has saved you not by what you've done and you're going there, then what you do right now points there. Everything you do has meaning because everything you do in the resurrection will be redeemed and made new and have a larger purpose, larger beauty. That's the gospel. And if your mission has meaning, then your ethics have wisdom because your ethics, your values, if you like, will point towards the mission you live. Your values, your mission, they're in alignment and they'll point towards your destiny. Now, right now, I just sound like a TED talk. But all of that, is what Jesus came not to just say as a slogan, but to fulfill. Say, I am the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king, and I am also God. And there's only one of me, one of one. Jesus is one of one. There's a lot of religious systems, I understand. And I understand that we live in a moment that it seems cruel and unfair even to critique different religious systems and say that one is right and one is wrong. But at some point, We all must go, what is truth? See, Pontius Pilate asks that, and sometimes we read that lightly and go, great question. And do you know what he does after that? He washes his hands of the problem and walks away. That's what we do. That's what most of us do. If you're in this room and you either have never given your life to Jesus or it's been a very long time until you have, let me encourage you, do not wash your hands and walk away. You don't have to cross that line yet. I understand that it's a long journey. And for C.S. Lewis, it took him a long time. And the place he did it was in a car at the end of Surprised by Joy, his autobiography about his own Christian conversion. This is what he says. I couldn't really tell you how it happened. <laughs> he says, when, he goes through all these stages where he goes from atheist to theist, from possible polytheist to monotheist. You don't have to worry about that. But basically he gets to the point where he goes, God is true. And I think Jesus might be true. And he says, I got in the car and I drove out to a place called Whipsnead. And when I got in the car, I was not a Christian. And when I left, I was. Somewhere in between that, he had accepted Jesus is Lord. He is who he says he is. And when we do that, church, it changes everything. Everything. It's not an idea. It's the truth. And the truth will set you free if you let it. It really will. Thanks so much for listening. I pray that you were able to hear from God in a fresh way today. We would love to hear from our listeners. To connect with us or to financially support the work of Encounter, please jump on our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to jump onto iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast provider and give us a rating and review. Or share this message on your social media accounts and tag us at Encounter Adelaide. God bless. Have an amazing week.